Chapter 8 of The Mute Singer by Anna Cora Mowat Ritchie. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kelly Taylor. Chapter 8 One person, at least, enjoyed the repast that Sylvie's inconsequent father had so lavishly provided, and that was the prodigal purveyor himself. He presided at his humble board with lordly bearing, and as though he were entertaining in place of his pale-faced wife and drooping daughter and their unassuming friend, a host of distinguished guests. It was long since he had tasted wine, especially of a quality as irreproachable as that which he now liberally quaffed and he drank to the health of sylvie and to that of maitre bourgeot then to the prosperity of musicians in general then toasted in flowery phrase the muse of music then all her sister muses and then the world at large with every glass his naturally expansive heart opened wider and wider until it took in all humanity just as sylvie placed the dessert upon the table a troop of eager friends poured in, for at this instant fortune smiled promisingly on the de la Roches, and they discovered that they possessed numberless friends, whom they had never dreamed of enrolling in friendship's category. These good, disinterested, incurious people came to offer their congratulations and proffer their services. De la Roche received them en grand seigneur, graciously appropriating their compliments as though their homage were entirely due to himself. It was not possible to invite all the visitors to be seated, for the poor apartment contained but four chairs, the piano stool, and one low bench. These, however, were soon occupied, and the side of the bed converted into a sofa. After that, the newcomers were obliged to stand, as were Sylvie, her parents, and Ursule. The delighted host requested everyone present to favor him by drinking a bumper to the future laurels of the young singer, and poured the ruddy wine without stint. Mildly rebuking her for forgetfulness by a look, he desired Sylvie to hand the tarts, strawberries, and cherries to their esteemed guest. With tottering feet and trying to force a few feeble smiles, she obeyed, but the ever-watchful Ursule, perceiving her unfitness to discharge even this light office of hospitality, caught the dishes from her hands, and, casting a by no means gentle glance at de la Roche as she passed him, whispered, "'It is more proper for me to do this,' and do you not see how fatigued she is too much elated by the glory of the hour to notice an intimation that his daughter was incapable of the required exertion through weakness he quickly took the hint that it was too great a condescension for a newly crowned queen of song to wait upon her lowly admirers he proudly drew her to his side and with one arm around her slender form stretched the other commandingly towards the assemblage and harangued his guest with oratorical emphasis light peals of bombast intermingled with showers of roses he thanked them for the honour of this visit he might say 
the sunlight of their presence. For their admiration of his child, which he modestly admitted was by no means misplaced, he told them that though he would ere long be compelled to remove from their midst, though possibly his path of life, once so thorny, now was about to be thickly strewn with flowers, would so widely diverge from theirs that they might meet no more upon this side of eternity. He should never forget the kindness, the sympathy, the devotion of unpretending friends who had poured balm upon his healing wounds. He assured them that he would never look down upon the lowliest of that little band, however high the position he might be called upon to occupy, and he would bury beneath the waters of oblivion all remembrance of the countless inconveniences to which he had for some years been subjected, when he recollected the happiness of this moment, the proudest of his checkered life. Claret weak and unintoxicating beverage as it is usually deemed by the French, when it chances to be the juice of as fine a vintage as that which had been selected by Monsieur de la Roche, may mount to a constitutionally light brain, and we are inclined to think that this gentleman's natural hilarity and volubility were increased by the unwanted stimulus. A stranger would certainly have arrived at that conclusion, that he was a wronged and estimable individual who had just received some rightful inheritance of which he had long been unlawfully deprived, or that he had amassed a fortune through his own ability and untiring industry which he was now permitted to enjoy for the smooth remainder of his days. A couple of hours had elapsed, but the good people seemed unwilling to disperse. Ursul, finding that no one stirred, though bottles and dishes alike were empty, Dame Manot, into her confidence, told her that Sylvie was too feeble to undergo this prolonged excitement, and begged that she should give a moving hint to her friends. This considerate dame, who had a sincere affection for Sylvie, managed so admirably that the gratified visitors rapidly took their departure. De La Roche, elated to the highest pitch of restlessness, could not have tarried with the rather dull family party that remained. He took up his hat and told his smileless wife that he meant to visit the Théâtre Francais to see the famous Rachel, the light of whose genius had just burst upon the Parisian world. Ursule was strongly inclined to remonstrate. You cannot afford it! You have nearly wasted all the poor child's earnings already, were the words that rose to her lips, but she had not the courage to utter the just rebuke, and Monsieur de la Roche departed. To get Sylvie to bed was the next most important move, but how it was to be effected without awaking the fears of Madame de la Roche? All Ursule's tact was needed to avoid that undesirable result. The unreasonable mother had several times during the day expressed her conviction that she was about to lose all her authority over her child, and Ursule thought to turn this weakness to account. If the suggestion that Sylvie ought to retire emanated from Madame de la Roche herself, and went forth in the shape of a command, 
her mind might be diverted from examining the need of such an order the ready-witted old maid took her aside and said monsieur de la roche is very unreasonable he has not proper consideration for sylvie you really ought to be obligated to exert your maternal rights and interfere he made her stand for a full two hours while your chairs were all occupied with those stupid people whom he chose to entertain very superfluously if you take my advice you will order sylvie off to bed and insist upon her resting do not mind her showing a disinclination to go use a little needful authority you are her mother and you can make her obey madame de la roche greedily swallowed the bait and was highly pleased to feel herself of a little importance for during the events of last week she had become more completely a non-entity than ever with quite a show of command she desired sylvie to retire forthwith the weary girl failed to play her part in the little drama by even a faint appearance of unwillingness but Ursul covered the deficiency by treating her as though she had positively rebelled. Now, Sylvie, said the good creature, deprecatingly, do not argue with your mother and try to gainsay her wishes. Don't you understand that she chooses you to go to bed? Do be off at once like a good girl and don't dispute her orders. She knows what is for your good. Come, I will be your lady's maid and undress you. With a parade of compulsion, she led the unresisting girl into the little chamber and helped her to disrobe, and thus afforded her aid which she sorely needed. Sylvie slumbered more tranquilly than upon the previous night. She rose the next morning partially restored, yet it seemed as though something ailed her. She could not definitely tell what. She experienced no actual pain, but was oppressed by a sinking sensation that incapacitated her from energetic action. Strength of will, however, partially supplied the place of strength of physique. She went through the round of her daily occupations without uttering a complaint, thus escaping her mother's close scrutiny. The observation of her thoughtless father it was always easy to avoid. Maître Beaujau made his instructions very brief. Her voice required repose, he said. When the lesson ended, he remarked, Now you must go out. Go to the Tuileries, or the Champs-Élysées, or where you please, but you must have fresh air and exercise. Turning to her mother, he added, Will you accompany her, madame? How is it possible to spare the time? she answered rebelliously. I must sew, and Sylvie ought to practice. I tell you she ought to walk thundered Beaujau, biting his lips to restrain his ire. If you do not choose to go with your daughter, I will accompany my pupil, to whom air and exercise are of vital importance. Madame de la Roche, who writhed under Beaujau's control, thought that to consent to this latter alternative would be giving the reins too completely into his hands. She answered quickly, No, if she was to go, I will accompany her. Very well, as you please, replied Bourgeot, taking up his violin. 
Do not forget the directions I gave yesterday in regard to your diet, Sylvie, and be sure you spend at least a couple of hours in the open air. I will spend. No fear of forgetting that. We'll do nothing but spend, sighed the lugubrious mother as he disappeared. Spend time unprofitably and spend money recklessly. It is disheartening. But we are not allowed to rule our own actions, and we must submit to our fate. Sylvie hardly enjoyed the rarely accorded pleasure of a promenade on the Champs-Élysées. In spite of her mother's lengthy tirade against the cruel despotism of Maître Bourgeau, and her constantly bemoaning the waste of time of which he compelled them to be guilty, Monsieur de la Roche was diligently occupied in seeking for handsome apartments, and, having found a furnished suite that struck his fancy, he would have engaged it, and commenced moving at once, had not Sylvie ventured very gently but firmly to oppose this rash step. She failed, however, to make him see his imprudence, or to alter his determination until she reminded him that they would not be permitted to leave their present lodging without paying the amount due up to the time for which it was rented and begged him to count what funds remained and calculate whether this was possible he complied merely to humour such an excellent little daughter he said though it was nonsense for they had more than sufficient on finding out his error, he was a little staggered, and Sylvie gained the day. Her father magnanimously consented to postpone the proposed removal until after her next appearance. If Sylvie herself lacked strength, her voice had lost no power. It was never richer, never sweeter, never more wondrously flexible. Ursule alone noticed that her hands were still feverish, and that a hectic flush crimsoned her usually pale cheek, and faded away again at brief intervals. That Monsieur de la Roche should be among his daughter's auditors at Duke de Blanc's was out of the question. The concert was given by the Duke to his friends, who received cards of invitation. The evening was to close with a grand ball. Sylvie's father resigned himself to the unavoidable privation more philosophically than could have been expected, but found consolation by largely indulging in glorious visions of the time when the novice of today would break loose from her master's leading strings and be solely under paternal guidance. Sylvie was engaged to repeat the three airs she had sung with so much eclat at the Salle Saint-Cécile. This was a politic arrangement on the part of Maître Beaujau, for she was not only spared the fatigue of fresh study, but the verdict passed upon her execution of those songs was too enthusiastically favorable for her success to be in any peril. Her surprise was as great as her gratification when Maître Beaujau, on the morning of the concert, laid a chaplet dexterously woven of ivy leaves upon the piano and bade her wear it in her hair that night a delicate attention from her rough master might well excite as much wonder as gratitude he had a quick eye and a ready worship for the beautiful 
he constantly lamented sylvie's unattractive looks and pondered on the possibility of improving them as his back was always turned when she was singing he was unaware of the electrifying change that was wrought by the outgushing of that melody which had its fountain in the recesses of her soul he had selected this ivy wreath because he knew it would display to advantage her luxuriant dark hair and finely shaped head and give a classic effect to her pale countenance frenchman as he was he had chosen natural leaves as best suited to the unartificial wearer much as sylvie prized her master's token it did not cause her to slight Mateu's offering of bright geranium blossoms those she wore in her bosom now for it how does the white silk dress become you is not my garland of ivy just the thing to set it off i expect to see you trying to pass for a beauty to-night said maitre bourgeot as he entered the room to take charge of his pupil then added looking at her more closely why this is not white silk surely this is the common little frock you wore before what has become of the grand toilette you were preparing has your skilful mantua-maker soiled the white silk in the cutting monsieur de la roche who was standing by grew nervous he felt the thunder-clouds gathering over his head and looked uneasily at sylvie who had not the presence of mind to answer ursule replied with some asperity i have not soiled the white silk monsieur and if it's not ready for to-night it's no fault of sylvie's nor of mine monsieur de la roche was seized with a violent fit of coughing during which he darted pleading glances at the dressmaker her heart had long been troubled with a chronic softness that incapacitated her from resisting the least appeal to her generosity and she concluded the speech so spitefully commenced with the white silk will do for the next time she shall certainly wear it then with quite a determined look at the father then to divert maitre bourgeot's suspicions remarked those ivy leaves give sylvie a normal like look did you ever see her appear to such an advantage no never but i wish her best or better Beaujau could not resist the temptation to remark. Sylvie laughed with unconcerned good humor, which showed that she had too little vanity for it to be wounded, and answered, If I were as beautiful as you are frank, one might be contented. Might one not, my master? Beaujau had ordered a fiacre, an indulgence his restricted means had not allowed on the two former occasions when they reached the courtyard of the palatial mansions of the duke the driver stopped a crowd of equipages passed in but he knew that it would be improper for his humble vehicle to approach nearer sylvie and her master alighted what a scene of eastern enchantment burst upon their sight as they entered the gate the court was brilliantly illuminated with colored lamps rising from baskets of flowers in the center a fountain sent up sparkling jets that reflected 
prismatic hues as they fell over statues of water nymphs. The whole round of the court was girdled by a wall of blossoming orange and lemon trees, intermingled with flowering shrubs and the rarest exotics. A gorgeous carpet, softer than the most velvety turf, was spread upon the marble steps and over the path that led to the carriages. Sylvie gazed about her in rapturous amazement. She imagined herself suddenly transported to some ideal land which she had only beheld in her dreams. She would gladly have lingered to examine the flowers and inhale their entrancing perfume, but Maidre Bougeot hurried her on, for they were later than usual. Monsieur Legrand greeted them with almost oppressive cordiality as they entered the sumptuous apartment appropriated to the musicians. And when they were conducted to the concert hall and Sylvie took her place among the singers, an audible murmur of delight ran through the crowd. She was immediately recognized and the audience betrayed so much impatience to hear her voice once more that not the faintest attempt was made to encore a single performer who preceded her. When her turn came, she rose with graceful self-possession and did not again forget to salute the spectators. When she sang in public before, she had beheld no one, had been conscious of no presence, had hardly remembered that she was not in her own humble little chamber. Now, amid the crowd, one face shone distinctly, throwing all others into a background of shadow. A shone for her to excited vision. That peerless head almost seemed encircled by a luminous halo. The countenance was that which had haunted her dreams and risen day and night unsummoned before her waking sight. With the eyes of her mind, she had not seen it less clearly than she saw it now. She was singing not to the noble assemblage who breathlessly drank in seraphic sounds that poured from her lips, but to one being only, one to whom she had never dared to open those lips in speech. Not that she analyzed her own tumultuous emotions, or knew what she was doing, or comprehended the intensity of feeling, the holy fever, which she threw into the love-breathing music. The audience had been charmed when they listened to her O mio Fernando at the Sal San Cecile, but now the impassioned tone, the abandon, the reality that spoke in the voice and look penetrated the coldest heart and created a perfect fervor by which the most insensible listener was carried away. All Sylvie's weakness had vanished. She had never felt stronger, more elastic, more at her ease. Her step was firm, her movements were free, her bosom rose and sank with full and deep inspiration. If her pulses were rapid, they were also regular. She was exhilarated to the highest degree of pleasurable excitement which she had ever experienced. Was it the stimulus of adulation? The throb of gratified vanity that awoke this ecstatic sensation? Was it the exercise of the wonderful gift with which she had been endowed? Was it the dawning of some new, uncomprehended capacity of soul that filled her with its sweet, palpitating strangeness? She could not have answered these questions herself. She did not hear what was said to her and answered at random. 
she could not have told afterwards who had addressed her or even whether her master had spoken to her the loud acclamations conveyed no meaning to her ears the waving handkerchiefs none to her eyes until she saw one arm lifted and from that hand floated her banner of triumph when the concert was over as sylvie stood with her arm in that of maitre Beaujau, looking proudly happy and bowing her adieu to monsieur legrand many of the audience thronged around the latter and begged to be presented to the young stranger before he could comply honorine had forced her way through the crowd and with the marquis de saint amar reached her side i am commissioned by the duke said the little sprite to beg you to remain to the ball let me add my entreaties to his you do not look fatigued to-night you seem delightfully fresh do stay will you not sylvie's glowing face expressed no disinclination to consent if maitre Beaujau does not object she answered turning her eyes upon him with a look of mingled submission and entreaty i am sure monsieur Beaujau will not refuse us this petition replied honorine addressing him in a tone of bewitching supplication if i thought mademoiselle de la roche would not suffer from fatigue he answered the honour sylvie interrupted him i am not in the least tired my dear master if i may i should like to stay and monsieur says distinctly that you may that look of his bade me tell you so rejoined the lively honorine i can read faces and his is a very expressive one don't you think so asked the little flatterer my master quarrels with me when i am saucy enough to tell him that i say that his eyes betray replied sylvie archly he will not deny that i have interpreted his look rightly will you monsieur Bougeot? inquired the siren that is a liberty that i could not venture to take returned the musician not a little charmed at having such a pair of clear frank brown eyes fastened upon his time furrow visage oh thank you monsieur Bougeot, but we must take immediate possession of mademoiselle de la roche else a host of admirers will be running away with her so mademoiselle sylvie take my brother's arm and sylvie started violently and the blood leapt in a sudden torrent to her cheeks and brow but allow me first to present my brother the marquis de saint amar resumed honorine how surprised you look are you astonished that such a grave-looking personage should have such a wilful troublesome little torment of a sister at all events as he happens to have no other he has no better but do tell me for whom did you take me i imagined i understood that somebody said that you were madame de la marquise de saint amar honorine's low merry laugh rang out like the rapid sweeping of a hand over harp-strings her brother replied no mademoiselle should i ever choose a wife it will not be such an elfish little gossamer as this butterfly sister of mine 
Of course not. He will court some awfully stately and oppressively sensible person who will frighten me out of my wits whenever I come into her august presence and whom I shall mortally detest and will never be able to call sister. But I'll take my revenge by never inviting the odious pair to the concerts I shall give and by always having you to sing for me. Now, as my brother is passionately fond of music, that will punish him for inflicting a bore upon me as relative. This bantering conversation was interrupted by Monsieur Legrand, who, with profuse apologies to Mademoiselle de Saint-Omar, presented a number of ladies and gentlemen to the youthful singer. Sylvie replied to their compliments with grateful humility and answered their inquiries with unembarrassed propriety. Her modest artlessness was wholly free from a touch of shyness. It seemed as though the manners of good society had suddenly been engrafted upon her by the very atmosphere she was breathing. She stood between Honorine and her brother, the lodestar of a circle of admirers. Maitre Beaujau, at a distance, watched her in mute amazement. As with unaffected ease she turned to each person who addressed her, smilingly accepted floral offerings, and gaily entered into conversation with old and young. The rosy glow upon her cheeks kindled up her eyes until they seemed to shoot forth effulgent rays. Her lips, even when silent, spoke through the eloquently varying expression that wreathed or curved or parted them. Her fragile form had lost its willow-like droop, and the statuesque grace of her poses could not be surpassed by a sculptor's ideal. Beaujau found it impossible to recognize his sallow-visaged, bent, weak, meager little pupil in the resplendent being that stood before him, calmly receiving the homage of an admiring crowd. In one hour, the feeble, shrinking girl had matured into a strong and self-reliant womanhood. Every bud of promise had suddenly sprung into glorious bloom. There was a glamour in the marvellous unfolding. As he gazed upon her, she moved away, accompanied by Honorine, the Marquis, and the Duke. Beaujau followed her with his eyes only. Astonishment transfixed him to the spot. Midnight sounded. The lateness of the hour aroused him. It was time to conduct her home. She was delicate in the extreme, and her health might suffer from this unusual dissipation. He wandered from the salon to salon, searching for her in vain. At last, through a small opening in the crowd, he caught a glimpse of the ivy circlet which he had ordered that morning, little dreaming that the head for which it was destined would wear it so regally. With considerable difficulty he made his way through the throng. Honorine and Sylvie were standing together beside the sumptuously spread supper-table. The Marquis was in the act of handing the latter a golden shell, holding an ice that made the hue and form of a peach. Though the humble maiden had certainly never seen such a frozen cream in this attractive shape, or taken in her dainty fingers a shining shell of gold in lieu of a plate, she betrayed not the faintest token of surprise. Her thoughts were so engrossed that she experienced none, 
or else everything by which she was surrounded seemed so entirely the work of enchantment that she had ceased to wonder. It is very late, Mademoiselle Sylvie. Bourgeau uttered the Mademoiselle involuntarily. He could not have costed her as was his wont. You must be fatigued. It is time for us to take our leave. Must we go, my master? I am not in the least tired. Voices on every side protested against her departure. I cannot think of parting with her yet, Monsieur Bourgeau. Leave her with us a little while longer, petitioned Honorine. Sylvie repeated the words, a little while longer, in a wistful tone. She could not bear to have her dream broken so soon. The old man shook his head, but not very determinedly. There are large odds against you, Monsieur Bourgeau, said the Marquis de Saint-Amand. You will be obliged to yield and grant us the happiness of Mademoiselle de la Roche's presence for a while longer. Sylvie's eyes shone with redoubled luster, but the lids dropped suddenly over them, as though they feared to betray their own exultant gleaming. Bourgeau bowed assent without remonstrating and withdrew. Another hour passed, and still another. Sylvie had flitted away, and her master had again lost sight of her. She was now in the ballroom, watching with eager interest the gliding figures that, as they threaded the mazes of the dance, were reflected in the mirrors which lined the spacious salon from ceiling to floor. Honorine was dancing, or rather floating through the air, as though her fairy feet were under no compulsion to touch the ground. Her brother, with stately movements that kept perfect time to the inspiring movement without stooping to terpsichordian steps, was leading a fair young partner through the same set. The duke was conversing with Sylvie, but her eyes were turned from him and rested upon the dancers. Honorine was the first to spy Beaujau wending his way towards his pupil. Fortunately, the dance had just concluded, and curtsying hurriedly to her partner, she joined her brother, exclaiming, "'There is the hawk in pursuit of our singing bird. Let us fly to the rescue, or he will capture and carry her away.' But before they could reach Sylvie, her tutor had told her that it was time to depart, in a tone so peremptory that it silenced objection. She had made her adieu to the duke, and allowed herself to be led away. "'You are not going yet, Monsieur Bougeot,' cried Honorine, following them. "'Stanislaus is so cross with me for having compelled him to dance when he wanted to be more agreeably occupied that I shall not be able to obtain his pardon tonight if you leave the moment the dance is over.' "'What nonsense you talk, little madcap,' retorted the Marquis. I trust, Monsieur Bourgeot, you will allow us the pleasure of taking Mademoiselle de la Roche and yourself home. Many thanks, Monsieur de la Marquis, for the proposed honor, replied Bourgeot, but we have a conveyance which has been waiting for us some hours. No matter, send it away, urged Honorine, and let us take you. You are very kind, Mademoiselle, but we will not give you the trouble, answered the musician with an air of such firm declination that, although Honorine looked disappointed, good breeding forbade her to remonstrate. At that moment the Duke addressed the Marquis and his sister, asking their advice about a 
fetch Champartre, which he was about to give. Without further leave-taking, Bourgeot conducted Sylvie to the apartment where she had left her wrappings. On passing out the street door, they found that it was raining fast. They hurried through the courtyard to the gate, where Bourgeot expected to find his fiacre waiting. It was not to be seen. In vain he hunted among the splendid equipages. The plebeian conveyance had disappeared. After many inquiries, he obtained the startling information that a fiacre had stood there until within an hour, but the driver had got into a dispute with one of the coachmen, and on the approach of the police, fearing that he might be arrested, had driven away too rapidly for pursuit. "'What are we to do?' wrote forth Bourgeot, in deep distress. "'How is it possible for you to walk in this pouring rain? "'It is dreadful. It will ruin your voice. It will kill you. "'You will certainly take your death of cold.' "'Don't believe that, my dear master. I am quite able to walk. "'The air will refresh me. "'And as for the rain,' she added gaily, "'I do not feel it. I do not mind it more than—' "'Than a swan?' added Bourgeot, in a tone of compliment that sounded strangely. It was so rarely found on his lips. The next instant he shuddered and said, I do not like the comparison. It reminds me that the swan is fabled to die singing. While I shall live by singing, so your simile is really not felicitous, answered Sylvie gaily. As she attempted to gather up her dress to save it from contact with the mud, the bouquet she was carrying encumbered her. With an awkward display of gallantry, Bourgeot offered to take charge of them. Sylvie tripped on as airily as though she had not undergone the least fatigue, and how blithely she prattled. The rain was beating down upon her head as though she were walking in a shower bath. The old veil was drenched. The black mantle saturated, the white slippers soaked through, yet she never heeded, or only found subject for mirth in these inconveniences. Maitre Bourgeot listened to her pleasant talk and answered with a deference which he had never shown before. Ever and anon he inwardly asked himself, with a sense of vague wonder, if this were indeed Sylvie. He felt that his mind was brought into communion, not with that of a mere underdeveloped girl, but with that of a woman of aptitude and intellect, guileless as girlhood, but salient, sparkling, comprehensive, intuitively adapting itself to its circumstances as womanhood in its finest manifestation. The clock had struck four ere they reached the Rue Saint-Denis. It was some time before Dame Manot could be roused from her heavy slumber. When at last she opened the door and sleepily thrust out her nightcap and beheld Sylvie standing without, her veil and mantle blowing in the wind and the dripping white dress clinging to her lithe limbs as though she had just risen from a bath, while Maitre Bourgeot looked as though he had been drowned and resuscitated, the good woman shrieked with such genuine dismay that but for the wailing of the wind and the pattering of the rain, her voice would have summoned the guardians of the night. Stop your unearthly howling, growled Maitre Bourgeot, trying to pass her. What is the matter with the woman? Oh, what is the matter with Sylvie, rather, cried the dame. Has she failed? Has she been disgraced? Oh, what has happened? 
Maitre Beaujeu disdained to give any explanation of their present plight, but Sylvie stopped him as he hurried her on. You see how you must have misjudged this kind friend the other day, my master. You see how grieved she is when she thinks I have not succeeded. Was I not right to believe that she rejoiced at my good fortune? Then she turned soothingly to the shivering concierge. Nothing is the matter, Dame Manot, except that the fiacre disappeared. The driver got into a quarrel and drove off without leave. We were obliged to walk, but everything else went well. It has been the happiest evening of my life. As they were ascending the stairs, Beaujau inquired, At what hour tomorrow do you wish to take your lesson? It was the first time he had ever consulted her pleasure or convenience. At whatever hour suits you best, replied Sylvie, with her wonted humility. But have you any preference? I can make my time conform to yours. That would not be right. I am only too grateful to take my lessons whenever your leisure serves. The old man stopped suddenly, and seizing both her hands, asked with emotion, Sylvie, will you always be grateful? Will not contact with the idol-making world change your nature? Will not the hot touch of aristocratic palms brush away the delicate bloom from your character? Will not the voice of adulation poison its sweetness? Will not world knowledge destroy the, your holy innocence? Will you always be what you are now? If I am, if I do not grow much better, my master, you will have cause to blush for me. They were at her chamber door. Beaujau released her hands, laid the bouquets he was carrying in her arms, and went on his way. Ursule was sitting up with Sylvie's parents, counting the hours as they slowly passed. It is nice to state that Madame de la Roche had worked herself into a state of almost frantic alarm at her daughter's non-appearance. Her husband's sanguine temperament, which always anticipated that which was most agreeable, caused him to conjecture rightly in this instance. He was perfectly certain that, after the concert concluded, the rising star had been solicited to shine upon the ball. Though Ursule gladly accepted this explanation of Sylvie's prolonged absence, Madame de la Roche refused to give credence to any solution so pleasing and satisfactory. When at last Sylvie entered, dripping with the rain, she was greeted by a general cry of compassionate distress, but her beaming face, still flushed with the roses of triumph, her glittering, dancing eyes and smiling lips announced that there was no cause for commiseration. Her mother's moans could, with difficulty, be silenced long enough to allow her daughter to relate the misadventure which led to the predicament which she assured them was of very little importance, for had she not often walked in the rain before, she asked, did it ever harm her? Ursule removed her mantle and veil without the least allusion to the damage they had sustained. On the contrary, she threw them out of sight, that they might not attract attention. Then she took the bouquets out of the young girl's hands and examined them with admiration. Did you ever see flowers so perfect? asked Sylvie delightedly. They are beautiful, very beautiful. They are hothouse plants. But I have seen all the flowers before, years, years ago. And the old maid sighed at some sad recollections, 
conjured up by the sight of these lovely exotics, but quickly chasing away the intruding memory, she relinquished the flowers, saying, My dear Sylvie, you must take off those wet clothes instantly and go to bed. Come, I will undress you. Sylvie was not inclined to retire. She would have much rather lingered to enjoy her father's raptures and comfort her mother, whose lamentations at the prospect of her daughter's taking cold were loud and long. But her soul knew that threatening calamity could be averted, and could only be through immediate care, and she would not consent to a moment's delay. In less than half an hour, the ivy wreath lay upon the tributary bouquets, which had been carefully placed in water, and the head those shining leaves had encircled reposed upon its unluxurious pillow, and Sylvie's bright eyes were closed in gentle sleep, while upon her lips the happy smile still lingered. End of chapter 8